Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We are back. Uh, Galatians 4, please. 1 through 7. All right, two things by way of introduction. First, I was thinking in myself, nobody's asked me, but maybe you're curious, why do we kind of organize our sermon calendar the way I do or the way we do? You'll notice I'm typically preaching through a book that's longer and then I'll take breaks and go to Ruth and maybe do another break and then do a few weeks and you know how I do it. I don't pick Galatians and then just preach right through it without any breaks. Why do I do it that way? I don't know. That's just my personality. Like, I don't read one book and just read right through it. I'm reading ten books at a time. and um, I like to have a lot of projects going and not just one. And sometimes it infuriates my wife. So if that's bothersome to you, there's no right way to do this in that way. If you look at the history of preaching, let's say, how many, you've heard the name Spurgeon, right? He's maybe considered the best preacher in the English language. Do you know how he preached? He never preached through a book of the Bible, ever. He typically didn't know what he was preaching yet on Friday for Sunday. On Saturday, he'd wake up and read the Bible and a text would hit him and he'd typically not even take a whole verse. He'd take a couple of words of a verse and write his sermon out on Saturday and preach it on Sunday. Uh, most of the history of preaching hasn't been like consecutive preaching verse by verse through the Bible. That's a newer thing. I think it's a great thing. But I like to take breaks, and I like to kind of go back and forth between the Old and New Testament if you're curious about that. If not, I've wasted a couple minutes of your life. Uh, but that's how I do it. So we're on the 22nd sermon of the book of Galatians, which we started just about a year ago this Sunday. Uh, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit going through it. Uh, but I hope it's helpful to you. Uh, that's why we do it. Uh, second, for Mother's Day, there's sometimes where we do a specific sermon for or about mothers on Mother's Day and fathers on Father's Day. Sometimes we don't. This year we're not, although this text I think will be very helpful to mothers. We do see motherhood in it, don't we? Christ was born of woman. Uh, Eve is called the mother of all living. And so this is the great gift given to women the ability to bear and nurture life. Uh, And Christ was promised as a descendant born of a woman to Eve who would crush the serpent's head. Uh, Throughout Scripture, God chooses women often miraculously to have children when they couldn't, and they were often in the line of Christ. And so uh, we'll see that. And then we see adoption. This is a good gift of raising children who were orphaned. And, and so there'll be a lot to mothers. But the main thing for mothers in this morning's text is the need of the gospel. Mothers, this is probably true of all of us to some extent, but mothers particularly bear the weight of their children in a way that strikes at their conscience and often makes them very fearful and worried and ashamed of their children. That's why in Proverbs, the wickedness of a children, it doesn't say is born particularly by the father, but by the mother. And so mothers are often under guilt because they just don't do enough. Uh, and so what I want to do is help you see the place of the law in your conscience 
in dealing with guilt, but even more so the place of God's grace. And so hopefully that'll be helpful to you. Uh, and as I said, there are two sweet and comforting sentences in this. Uh, the first is verse 7, and the other is verses 4 and 5. So one of the applications I want is, what a, what a good gift it would be for your mothers to memorize that. And when they are particularly feeling depressed and low about their children, which they will often do, maybe remind your mom of that verse. Mom, my behavior isn't indicative of how bad of a mom you've been. <laughs> it's just my own sin. But mom, don't, don't forget that God sent his son to redeem those from under the law. That you might receive adoption as his son, mom. That'd be a good thing to give to your mom, wouldn't it? Okay, let me read these verses, pray, and then I want to kind of remind you of the whole of the book before getting into these verses. I mean that the heir, so he's picking up a metaphor that he had ended with in verse 29. So chapter 4 doesn't break with what's coming before. It's just a continuation. The verse, the ch- starting a new chapter here isn't as helpful because he's just continuing right on with this thought from what came before with this idea of an heir. Now I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons god has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father so you're no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through god let's ask god's help Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word, which is very often sweet and comforting. And so please send your Holy Spirit to reassure us that if we have Christ, then we are your sons. And if we are sons, then we are your heirs. Teach us too the place of the law in our lives and free us in our conscience from condemnation, from guilt, that we might know the freedom of being your children. But God, too, help us not to miss and not ever use the law and so never deal with our sin. And so, God, please give us mercy. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is the author of this letter. This is one of the first letters he wrote. If you remember his life, he was a, a zealous Jew whose obedience to God's law was... Uh, really good. He was in that sense a, a very strictly obedient man to God's law and he persecuted Christians thinking that Christ was a liar and all Christians were liars and they were teaching others to be disobedient to God's law. And then of course, God through a revelation of the Son of God to him totally radically changed him. Rather than being a persecutor of God's church, he became an establisher of the church. So soon after his conversion, he was sent out in order to preach the gospel among the Greek-speaking 
Gentiles in Roman cities. And one of the first cities he came to was Antioch. And after the church was founded there, Antioch kind of became a financially supporting sender of Paul and others to go to other cities and preach the gospel and start churches. And one of those cities was Galatia. That was a region, actually. This region was a place that he initially went to. Several churches were started. He passed through those churches, then he'd move on. And after moving on, he heard that this church in Galatia was having serious problems. And the problem at the core of all the problems was that they were thinking that in order to really be God's children, in order to go to heaven, in order to be forgiven of their sins, they needed Jesus, but they also needed to keep the Jewish law. They, They needed to become circumcised. They needed to not eat that, but eat that. They needed to observe different seasons. And that was the only way to be truly God's child. And that's a lie. And that was wreaking all kind of havoc and dissension and lovelessness within the church. And so this letter was written back to that church uh, full of fatherly love. It's, it's just emotive, this letter. It's very painful. Its language is sometimes seems outrageous. But at the heart of it is, what is a Christian? How do you get forgiveness of sins? How do you, a sinner, be able to come to a holy God? How can you go to heaven? That's at the heart. How do I get eternal life? And it's those questions that Paul is answering. And the way he answers it, he first begins with his own life. That God didn't convert him by keeping the law, but just through faith in Christ. And that the gospel he and the other apostles preached wasn't Jesus plus circumcision, but just Jesus. And that even when this controversy erupted in the church and the apostles came together in Jerusalem, the solution was it's just faith in Jesus. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's not Jesus plus not eating pork. It's not Jesus... Plus anything else, it's only faith in Jesus that makes you a child of God. And so Paul's own life and preaching and the apostles is the evidence. And then in chapters 3 and 4 and a bit of 5, he goes into the biblical defense. Like looking at several examples in the Bible to prove that the gospel that saves you, that gets you to heaven is only faith in Jesus and nothing else. And he takes a lot of time to describe the place of God's law in the life of a Christian. It's a big question, isn't it? Uh, you, chlorine. You've heard of chlorine, apparently, right? You swam in pools and it's irritated your eyes. And so chlorine is a substance, a chemical, an element, whatever you want to call it. It's good in its place. If your mom uh, puts chlorine in your food, is that a good place for it? No. If you decide that it'd be better to drink eight ounces of chlorine four times a day instead of water, would that be the right place for chlorine? No. But does that mean chlorine itself is bad and useless? No, it's only bad and harmful in the wrong place. But it's good in of itself and it's got very good uses. The same thing as God's law. God's law is good. It's perfect. It's beautiful. There's an entire chapter in Psalm 
119, the longest chapter in the whole Bible, written, singing the beauties like a wife. It's so beautiful. And yet, used in the wrong place, it's very harmful and actually very detrimental to a Christian. That's what the letter is about. And we're going to look at that specifically in our text. And so that's a good, let's do that. Let's look at our text. What's going on here? Well, there's two contrasting realities in these verses. First three verses, it's kind of telling the entire history of how God saves people. That before the time of Christ was slavery. God had given great promises that His people would become inheritors of all that God has. Hey, think about that. God owns everything, right? Is there anything that God doesn't own? No. And God promised that through His Son's coming, all of His people who loved His Son would inherit everything. But before His Son's coming, even though that promise is true, we were under, it says, guardians and managers. Now, I know it's been several weeks since we looked at this, but back in chapter 3, he talked about being under guardians. Like, Look at verse 22. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And then in verse 24, he kind of changes the metaphor. It's not prison, now it's a guardian. These guardians, if you remember, were slaves of the Master who were placed over the children of the Master to like strictly manage harshly all of the discipline in every moment of their lives. Everything. They followed them to school. They watched them at school. They followed them home. They made sure they ate the right things. If they ever stepped out of line, they beat them. they, They were oppressed by these guardians. And he's saying before Christ came, that's what our that's what we're like. Even though God's people are inheritors of everything, including the entire world, they're, they're treated like slaves under the law. So the first three verses are life without Christ, life before Christ, even though you're the inheritor of everything, under the law. It enslaves you. Why? Do you have anybody in your life that really irritates you? It's not that they've really done anything evil to you, but you know, they just grate on you. They, you don't like them. You don't necessarily hate them, but they just bother you to no end. Maybe they've done something bad to you. Maybe it's just personal, whatever it is. When they ask you to do something, are you like happy in your soul to do something nice for somebody like that just grates on you and irritates you? Probably not. You're disinclined to it. You'd be happier to do something for anybody else but that person. That's what sin has done to you in regards to God. You don't like Him. You're not pleased with Him. You're irritated by Him. And every time you meet anything He tells you to do in His law, you're totally disinclined against it. You don't want to do it at all. In fact, you're inclined to do just the opposite. And Mother's Day, children, you get this. Even though you maybe love your mom, anytime she asks you to do, you're, do something, your initial response is often, I want, I don't want to do that. I, I'd rather do the other. In fact, you'll be like watching TV, having nothing to do, and your mom will say, hey, would you go pick that up? And immediately say, well, I got to do homework, and I got to do this, and I got to do that. Like, you were just doing nothing for the last three hours, and suddenly you have this list of many things that you want to do because your mom asked you one thing to do. 
Why? Because that's what sin does to you. You don't love your mom. You actually are hating her. Anytime she opens her mouth to ask you to do something, you suddenly want to do everything else but that one thing. That's what sin does. And so every time one of God's law comes to you and it meets your stubborn, sinful heart, what's your response? When I was little, my sister Tiff, she's the youngest, and she, uh, well, she's the youngest. Is that enough? What? Well, we adopted two later, but when I was growing up, she was the youngest. And she was the most difficult at the food table, if I could say that. Most picky eater. And I don't remember what it was. Do you remember what it was? Spit, split pea with ham soup. What kid doesn't love that? And she wouldn't eat it, and she sat on the table chanting, H-E double hockey sticks, no. <laughs> right. That's what we're like towards God. It's not that the law is bad, it's that we're bad. And every time you meet God's law, it's like enslavement. Why? Because you hate it. You won't do it. And so you're under condemnation. You're under guilt. You're under wrath. That's the first three verses. In fact, when it says you're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, this is kind of a combo way to say there are demons and evil beings in the world that work conspiring with your flesh to cause you to hate God's law. You're enslaved to that reality. That's the first three. That's the reality before Christ, and that's the reality of all without Christ. That's you, isn't it? The second reality is the glory. Verses 4-7. to seven. It's this word, but. This is a, a contrasting word. It, it's a word that's signifying a great change has come. Those people of God who are actually inheritors but are so immature and vile in their sin and enslaved to it, God has delivered from that. When the fullness of time has come, according to God's plan, according to His eternal plan, created in the Trinity before the world was created, at, at the fullest time, at the perfect time, God sent forth His Son. So you're thinking, Son, Son of God, Adam, Adam sinned. Adam rebelled. There's another son. You're thinking Israel, God's son, rebelled, fell, rejected. There's another son. God sent forth the son of sons, the second Adam, the true Israel, at the right time, born of woman. He's sent forth. He's eternal. He's God. And now he's man, God-man, born of woman. Mary carried him for nine months in her womb. He was birthed in all that it was. It was this was not a clean birth. This was a birth birth. He endured that. And he came under the law. This is the Lord of the law. But he submitted himself under it, in obedience to it. And so... He could, being like us, being under the law, though he was completely obedient to it, take on our condemnation, our punishment, the wrath of God for us in our place. This is the gospel. And so we see who he is. 
He's the eternal God. He's made man. He's under the law in our place. And then we see in verse 5 what he did. Or the purpose in his work to redeem those who are under the law so that we might become, we might receive adoption as sons. So we're under the law. That's not a good phrase. We're under condemnation. We're under God's wrath. We have a flesh that refuses to obey, though the sentence is death, that we justly deserve. Because we have spit in the face of Almighty God, our Creator. We do it all the time. We're so ungrateful. And He redeems us out of that place. He picks us up out of that place and delivers us to a safe, secure, eternally restful place. He's our Redeemer. He reconciles us to God. He forgives all of our sins. He clothes us in His righteousness. Why? To what purpose? Why does He redeem you? Why does He forgive you? Why does He count you as righteous? Why? To what end? What's There's more than that. Do you know what the more is? So that you might receive adoption as sons. That you might be His children of God. Now the word sons is used here including females because male or female when you come to christ you're in christ and he's the son of god and so you're all sons of god which means of course that you inherit everything of god and then verses six and seven are filling it up because your sons there's two things the spirit of god has been sent into your heart as a testimony to us when the word is brought that you are indeed sons of the Father. And this Abba Father thing is wild. Abba is Aramaic. It's kind of the Aramaic pronunciation of the Greek word Father. It's what Jesus would have said when he was referring to God the Father. It's the language he and the other disciples would have used to be talking of their own Father, but also God the Father. And then the word father after that is the Greek father, patros. Is that how you say it? Is that how you say it? Close enough. So Abba is the actual Aramaic, and then you have the Greek. And so he's saying two things here. He's saying, you have on your lips by the Holy Spirit as a child of God the exact word that the actual son of God used to refer to his father. That's the intimacy that you have with him. You're a son as the son is. And second, you don't have to become a Hebrew to be a son of God. Any language will do. Any tribe, any people, any ethnicity is welcome to come to the Father. You don't have to become a law keeper to become a son. You just have to have faith in the son to become a son. And then you can call on your father. And notice that you cry out. You cry it out. What does that imply? boldness. You're a full-fledged, spirit-filled son of the heavenly Father. You can cry it out. You don't have to whisper it. You don't have to say it half-heartedly, kind of wondering if it's going to be received or not. You can cry it out. And it speaks to the misery that we have now until the day of Christ's coming, doesn't it? He welcomes all the miserable. Come to me. All you weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. And then second, 
It means that because you're a son, you're not a slave, and that means you inherit everything. <laughs> it's wonderful. Some of you have had that delight in this world, or you've heard of an inheritance that you didn't know was coming. Pretty fun, isn't it? To wake up one day and you get $50,000 more or something that you thought you'd really want. and What a delight. Or if you actually had a father who was very wealthy and lands and you were the inheritor of it. What a delight. And this is God, the eternal, almighty Father. You are heirs of His in Christ. And so the whole purpose of this entire thing is to reassure you of your relationship with God, no longer as judge, no longer as the one who will condemn you under his law, but as a father. That's the whole purpose of this. And it's in relation to the law. The law, going back to my chlorine analogy, the law, if you look at it, if you review the law and try to apply God's good law but in the place of your acceptance with God, in the place of your getting God's forgiveness, in the place of God counting you righteous with Christ's righteousness, if you try to apply the law there, it'll kill you. It's poison there. It's like trying to eat your Wheaties with chlorine there. This is why Paul speaks so derogatorily of God's law in the book of Galatians. Because they're applying it in the wrong place. Just think, in in 3.22 he calls the law a prison in the place of justification. He calls the law in verse 23 a captor, a kidnapper. In uh, 3.25 and 4.2 it's an unloving, harsh, taskmaster, picky babysitter. It'll never leave you alone. It just harps on you all the day long. Moms, don't be like that. And in our verse, he says it's like being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He speaks of the law terribly in the place of your justification. Why? Because you are so tempted to view your relationship with God primarily through how you do or do not keep God's law. And you apply it in the place of your justification when the law has no business there at all. Do you understand this? This is why so many of you have such fear in your relationship with God and such doubt. Okay, i got to help you get this because most of you are just like so dull. Okay? This is true of you. You're so dull that you don't think this matters. You just don't think this matters. You can't be bothered right now to pay attention. You just think like, just shut up and get the sermon over with. I want to go to lunch. Like This is the most important thing that you'll ever hear in regards to your Christian life. Do you understand this? There's nothing more important. Okay, how many of you in your relationship with God consistently feel belittled and like never measuring up, not good enough, condemned, full of guilt. You just don't feel like there's much love between you and God. And Is that you? Okay? Yes. For most of you it is. Why? Is that the way it's supposed to be? Because you just settled and you think that's the way it's supposed to be. In fact, you think that's a virtue. 
You want to be so careful not to deceive yourself that all you do is law, 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 law. That's it. That, 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 you think that's the norm. And so when you come to Galatians and, and, and you see that there is this glory in verses four to seven, I'm not a slave, I'm a son. I can cry out, Abba Father, I'm an adopted. I, I'm under the, I'm out from under the law. Or maybe you read in chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. That doesn't make any sense to you. That's not your reality. And you think, you just don't even know how to relate to that. It's because you're putting the law in the place. You're looking at your relation with God through the law when you should only look at it through Christ, who is the end of the law. And so what you have to beat yourself to death with is shut up, law. Just be quiet. I have Christ. You don't have to listen to it. You don't, that's, that's not what God has redeemed you for. He didn't redeem you because he knew that you would be tough on yourself with the law. He didn't look down the corridor of history and say, well, that one will take my law very seriously and will constantly feel guilty under the law. I'm picking him. I'm picking her. She'll constantly beat herself over being a terrible mother. And because she won't, ever received by grace and and freedom, I'm picking her because she really will knuckle it down. No, he has given you Christ and you're free. You're a son. You're not a slave. This is why he speaks of the law so harshly. This is why he condemns the law so vehemently in the place of your justification. It has no business there at all. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Nothing. And so you have to learn to hate the law of God in regards to your acceptance and justification of forgiveness. It is not meant for there at all. It's poison there. It's completely, 100% out of place there. The law does have a place in the life of a believer. Stick around when we get to chapters 5 and 6. The law is good in its place, but in justification, in your ultimate relationship with God as Father, Son, Forgiver, Redeemer, Adopter, Justifier, the law is nothing. It's zero. There's no business there at all except to convince you of your need for Christ. That's it. To show you that there's nothing good in you. Do you believe that? It's only Christ. Now how do you know? In verse 6, and throughout the book of Galatians, throughout the entire Bible, the mark of a believer is that they have the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? And what's the mark of having the Holy Spirit? Okay? When you... When God births you anew, He fills you, gifts you, you receive the Holy Spirit. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. God adopts you and you receive the Spirit of adoption within you. How do you know that? That's the trick, isn't it? (laughs) And one of the things you think is, by how I keep the law. Well, kind of, but not really. What's the mark? The mark of a believer is the Holy Spirit. How can you know if you have the Holy Spirit? Look at the verse. What 
what does the Spirit do within you? So is the mark of the Holy Spirit that you can speak in tongues? And that's how you know that you have No. Is the mark of the Holy Spirit that you get healed and get wealthy and thin and athletic? No. Is the mark of the Holy Spirit that you can prophesy? No. No. How do you know whether or not you have the Holy Spirit? Because when you hear the Word of God preached, the Holy Spirit is within you, confirming within you that you are God's child and that's it. Period. That when the Word of God is being read and preached and taught, that the Spirit of God is within you, confirming within you that you belong to Him. That you have a Father in Heaven who will never leave you nor forsake you, who has completely and utterly forgiven you. This is sensed. This is subjective, of course. You can deceive yourself. It's just like you as a child in the house of your parent. If somebody were to ask you, how do you know that your parent really loves you? That'd be almost like a stupid question. Because you just, you know. It's my parent. This is what the Holy Spirit is confirming. Within you, as the Word of God is being brought to you, even now, that's why you have to come here every Sunday. That the Holy Spirit, as the Word of God is brought in song and praying, but particularly in preaching and in the uh, baptism and Lord's Supper, that the Spirit is working within you, confirming you can cry out to your Father because He's your Father. So it's not this individualistic, privatized, pietistic, you and the Spirit and He's whispering to you. It's through the preaching, the the speaking of His Word, the Holy Spirit is working within you, confirming within you that you are God's Son. That's it. That's the mark of a believer. It's very simple, brothers and sisters. Do you love God? Do you want to hear His Word? Why do you want to hear His Word? Because you want to be reassured by the Spirit of God that you belong to Him because all week long you've been beat up with it. You want to be reoriented again that it is not law. It's His grace. It isn't my perfect law-keeping. It's Christ. that sound good to you? Then you're a child of God, aren't you? Because you would never believe that apart from the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? That's it. Don't, don't do anything else, okay? Just don't do anything else. Can you trust me here? Like, like you've got to listen to me here. I know... You don't want to listen to me, but you have to listen to that. You have to like stop, refrain, restrain that there's more. I know more than you about this. <laughs> and that's the word. So that's the mark. Now, I didn't mean to say that speaking in tongues and prophesying in miracles are garbage. I'm just saying they're not the mark of having the Holy Spirit or not having the Holy Spirit. And all of this is written that you might have confidence in the Father's love. That's the whole purpose of this. Because the law is going to constantly, when applied to your assurance of faith, the law is going to constantly tell you, you haven't done enough. You've done too much evil. There's heaven for many other people, but not for you. Because you've been too harsh of a mom all week long. And too lazy of a father. You've said the F word one too many times. 
You've looked at what you shouldn't have looked at too often. So you're done. That's what the law will constantly say to you. And what should you do with that? Look at Christ. That's it. Look at Him who was sent forth from His Father, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who are under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. That's it. And then use your freedom to love each other. So if you want assurance, if you want confidence, you will never find it in the law. Okay? You'll never find it in the law. You know what I mean here? This week, this coming week, you'll get depressed. Or you'll get angry. Or you'll get discouraged. And then you'll have a conversation with yourself. Why do I feel like this? And then you'll say, well, it's probably because I did this. It's probably because I didn't do that. And you'll look at law. And then you'll look at more law. And then you'll look at more law. And all that should do is cause you to say, enough. God has forgiven me. I need Christ. That's what we do with it. That's what this, that's what this is saying. All right, let's pray. Father, help us, please. Help us by your Holy Spirit to confirm within us as the word has been brought forth that we are your sons because of Christ. Keep us from applying the law in the wrong place. Keep us from trying to look at it through the ultimate evaluation of our relationship with you, our law keeping. And instead, help us to look to Christ who kept the law, who undid what Adam did, who is the true Israel and in whom we have sonship and inheritance and every good thing. And so God, teach us to have faith, to trust in what Christ did and in your acceptance of us in Him. And be deaf to just about everything else. So Father, please do this work in us. It's a hard work. Give us strength to endure in it, to fight, to believe the gospel. That we might live in the freedom that you've given us. Please, God, help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.